Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 55. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Stephen Hazel-Smith. He's the author of The City Grump and has spent over 30 years in the City of London. He began as a stockbroker's analyst before moving into the role of fund manager for the next 20 years. He's had a wide and varied career, chairing a stockbroker, a financial PR company, and an exchange. He now keeps his hand in business, chairing a brace of venture capital trusts and investing personally in startups. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Thank you for having me on. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Could you tell us how you got into the financial markets? Uh, Yes, I I trained as an accountant with the lustrous firm of Coopers and Ibrams, now called P- Price Waterhouse Coopers, PwC, and lots of our clients were um, brokers, you know, commodity brokers and stock brokers. And um, I really enjoyed working for one of the stock brokers, and actually flipped over the fence and joined them as a sort of junior analyst. And um, stock brokers are a bit like estate agents, of course. You have to be nice to your clients all the time. And um, <laughs> being intrinsically grumpy, I, could, I couldn't face that for more than about two or three years. So I, I flipped over to the dark side, as it were, which is uh, fund management. Where, as you probably know, if you're a fund manager, you don't really have to be nice to anybody for very long, apart from your own clients. You know? <laughs> so um, and I guess that was about, trying to think now, about 19... 19- Eighty-two or something, and then right the way through to about two thousand and three, I was in fund management, and then after that, uh, did various other financial things. How would you say, Stephen, that the industry has changed over the time that you've been in it? Uh, yeah, enormously, of course, like any industry, I suppose. I think I suppose the the biggest change really is that. Um, in the old days, um, fund managers, on the whole, active fund managers, there really wasn't any index funds around and uh, ETFs and so on, obviously. But in the old days, active fund managers had a quite a large degree of freedom to do as they as they wish uh, on the on the investment front. You know, if they wanted to invest in Saatchi or Tesco or something, they just went out and invested in it. But now, uh, the, the, there's so many rules and regulations and committees and compliance, etc., that that most active fund managers are quite tied down. In the old days, if you wanted to see a company, you know, Boots or Tesco or somebody like that, you could very easily get hold of them and the senior management would come in and talk to you. And you would have, a, for example, if you thought they were being paid too much, which is quite a topical conversation these days, uh, you would say to them, look, you know, you guys just being paid too much, do something about it. I think now there are very few, there are probably still one or two, but there are very few active fund managers who take such such an active role in corporate uh, side of the uh, governance, if you like, of, of the companies that they're investing in. They either don't have the time, the inclination, or what, I'm not quite sure. But that, that, of course, in my view, is why you get, just as an example, as we're talking about, is why you get such a, um, such crazy salaries and compensation, remuneration packages being paid, say, to FTSE 100 and FTSE 250, companies and of course that's beginning to bite back now and and one or two fund managers are going oh crikey maybe we better start getting a bit more interested but one of the things that's behind this is is the rising tide of regulation yes is there there any way that we i mean it feels like sort of king canute trying to reverse the tide hoping this thing can can abate is there any way practically that this thing can can change i've um lived with the regulator and still do i'm i'm an fca authorized person right now uh, for 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 of course ever since um regulation came on the scene um and i'm pausing really because uh, um uh, while i'm out of active fund management and therefore not in the front line of that i do keep in touch with a lot of frontline active fund managers and i was uh, having lunch with one only this week who will have to remain nameless i'm afraid we were talking about this 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 very issue what what's happening and part of this is down to the whole uh, mifid 2 dare i say nonsense and kid and all the rest of it 
they are they are having to basically they can't move without asking their compliance departments uh, to be on hand if you like they can't they can't communicate with companies and woe betide if they communicate with other fund managers about anything in particular um, because of this whole sort of compliance issue. Now, on the other side of the coin, or other side of the fence, really, which is slightly bizarre, I have, you know, the, the regulator um, has been very anti um, individuals, et cetera, investing in small companies for, for many, many, many years, almost as long as I can remember. And small company investing has been more my speciality over about the last 20 years. And that, that attitude actually has changed, would you believe? Um, they're more um, sympathetic towards that. And uh, if they weren't, they would have killed off crowdfunding and um, P2P completely by now. But they haven't, and they're more uh, interested. So you've got this extraordinary dichotomy where was they're quite trying to encourage people to invest in small companies. But in the in this like the institutional world as opposed to the individual world they are they are tying down the fund, these fund managers hand and foot and i think there needs to be some kind of wholesale reexamination of this it's you know i i've always said that there are only two um bodies if you like that the the, the regulator it takes any notice of uh, and that's always been the case which one is the treasury and the other is the media uh, a scared stiff of both. Um, it, the time really has come where, frankly, the, the senior fund managers in the business need to sit down with the Treasury and try and hammer this out. Um, they won't go via the media because a lot of them, including the one I had lunch with on Wednesday, are terrified if they conduct a media campaign, the FCA will, behind the scenes, come down on them and find something wrong with their business somewhere and try and shut them up. But I'm afraid that is that is what they are terrified of, rightly or wrongly. So it will have to be, a, if you like, a behind-the-scenes conversation with the Treasury. Um, now, there's a, a problem. I've spoken to Treasury many times over the year, years, and they are, they are willing to listen, sometimes more than others, but you, you can get to see them. I suppose a problem at the moment is that um, – the whole Whitehall system is so transfixed with Brexit that trying to get any sense, if you like, of direction and, and cooperation out of them at just at this moment in time is probably going to be futile. But that's not to say that they should not choose their moment and uh, and hammer this one home. You mentioned Brexit. Do you, do you think, I mean, I, I don't want to sort of, well, well we, we, you, too late. You've let the genie out of the bottle now. <laughs> um, do you think it's going to happen? I think it's. I think it. It's got to happen, isn't it? Really. I mean, I. I see. <laughs> it's just, I it, feels, it feels like we're in kind of such a. Such, we, we've gone down the rabbit hole so far that you know now you have to believe in six impossible things before breakfast every day. Yes, and I. And I. I, I, uh, I, I what I think is quite amusing is that even the um, the illustrious Diane Abbott I see is saying that she thinks if there was a second referendum, God perish the thought. And there we are. If there was a second referendum, Leave would win again. Uh, <laughs> I think she's absolutely right for the first time possibly in her life. But um, <laughs> but I suppose I would think that, wouldn't I? Uh, so I think I think it is going to happen in some shape or form. Whether it'll happen under um, a Tory party, as we know it, is a, is a different matter. Well, I suppose that's the other question, isn't it? Do, do you think that the two-party system, this sort of monolithic or duolithic two-party system, can survive Brexit? I'm not sure it can. I, I don't think it can. I mean, i slightly d distressed to read only this morning that Daniel Hanahan, who I think is... Uh, He's a god. The, He's an absolute god. Yes, one of the... I was going to say one of the much better ones, uh, you know, sensible Brexiteers, if you see what I mean, around. Yeah. Uh, uh, is saying in the Telegraph, in, the Sunday te in his Sunday Telegraph column this morning, that, you know, don't desert the Tory party now. The only way to change things is to stick with the Tory party and install some Brexiteers, etc., etc. I think what he hasn't realised is that there are legions of, of traditional Tory party supporters that come the next election, and I'm, I'm not necessarily talking about the European elections, they're a bit of a sort of oddity anyway, but come the next national election they will just simply abstain uh, uh, you, you know he, his, his view is stick with the tories otherwise let corbyn in my view is if you stick with the tories 
you know, you will let Corbyn in because people won't vote. They they need to co- they, they need to be a complete change in the whole structure of, of the political situation. And I, I think I think Hanahan and Cetras, the penny still obviously hasn't quite dropped. But that, that's personal view. How did you? I mean, you don't sound very grumpy, Stephen. How did you actually get the handles the, the city ground? <laughs> Well, I couldn't. I was dying to write, you know, because I think I said one of the reviewers had said that, that, that during my twenty-four-seven city active day jobs, as it were, and I suppose the last one like that was I, I chaired a the sort of little equivalent to AIM, which is then called Plus Markets, and is now called Next, and was nearly bought by Oliver Hemsley the other day, and then wasn't, and so on and so forth. But I, I just got increasingly fr- frustrated by what I could see, because I couldn't write about any of this, because I was, you know, in, in full-time employment, and, you know, quite understandably, my fellow directors or whatever wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't allow me to write about all the sort of absurdities I see, whether it's what we've been talking about with the FCA, uh, whether it's uh, what, what was sort of going on with... Um, in powerful companies and places anyway. So when I stopped full-time, I thought, whoopee, you know, I can now write about this. And an old friend of mine called uh, Stuart Stuart Rock, who who started life as I knew him, by editing the in-house CBI magazine, but that then had gone outhouse. And he set up a little stable of uh, magazines, and one's called Real Business. And he said, well, if you want to write real business about, you know, your your <laughs> grumpiness from time to time, please do. So that was about nine years ago, I think. And and um, and I've had a lot of fun and let, let off a lot of steam ever since, you know, uh, quite, quite uh, interesting. The, 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 I was talking to one of the editors there about six months ago, and she said um, – she said, "Oh, you know, we get a fantastic response from from people when they read your when they read your column. The number of them say, God, isn't he rude? You know, but actually, we agree with every word. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, so it's it, it, it's been a lot of fun. So I thought it'd be a fun thing to just try and turn it into the better articles, if you like, the ones that are still relevant." into a book so which is what i've done so you know there we are brilliant and that that's only just been released isn't it recently yeah. it's just been published it's yeah so- it's, it's sort of out now i mean I, I the publishing world is a bit of a mystery to me i mean the official <laughs> launch date is april the 28th but i mean it's been on amazon oh. since um for the last couple of months so <laughs> i have no right. idea how that works but uh, I, think it's, I think it's a bit like brexit it's sort of you know it takes a long time um, <laughs> I saw Matt. I mean, Matt, Matt, the Matt, the cartoonist for the Telegraph, is having a is having a a, a, a long standing field day over Brexit. Oh, he's a legend. He is, he is, he is good. And the one I saw during the week was it was a picture of the Andrex puppy, and um, <laughs> clearly other other brands of toilet paper are available. Um, yeah. but, but it was the Andrex puppy, and it was like Brexit, you know, soft and very very long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw that. That's uh, it's terrific. I mean, I, you know, it's. it's uh, yeah, I've had, I've had a, a lot of fun with that. I mean, I, I'm a passionate fan of cartoons, and I was lucky enough to have bought a few of Gerald Scarf's original cartoons to the Sunday Times, and um, bless him, he's actually done the cover for this book, The City Grump Rides Out. So, it's, it's, so um, the, the contents, etc., may not be up to everybody's liking, but I think the cartoon will. <laughs> so assuming Brexit goes through, um, how long do you think it will be before all this craziness all this regulation will get uh, unwound yeah well of course one of the horror shows i'm i'm led to believe and i think it's true that the, the dreaded mifid 2 which is at the heart of a lot of this nightmare you know remember mifid 2 i think is about 1.1 million paragraphs and i think i calculated that was 30 times the length of the bible um what one of the horrors is that mifid a lot of mifid 2 was actively encouraged by our regulator the fca so even if we do come out, there's going to have to be quite an act, quite a change, considerable change, mindset change around there, and because that that doesn't happen overnight. I would have thought it could be um, a couple of years before more sense prevails, as it were. So if you hadn't started out in the city when you did, if you were going to right now, how, how would you feel about it? The regulation's too hard now, or, or... I, I think I would. I mean, it's quite interesting. I, you know, I, I as we all know. Um, New trends tend to start in the US and then follow their way over here and eventually, I suppose, end up somewhere in Europe when Europe finally wakes up to anything in particular. 
But um, uh, the, the trend in the US recently is, is you've had a lot of um, brightish young things begin to pursue the traditional path. You can go and work for a Goldman Sachs or, or whoever, or JP Morgan, and then suddenly realize that they're terribly constrained. Uh, and they've come straight back out again, probably after a few years anyway, in the, say, late 20s. And decided they're just going to start their own businesses, probably not financial businesses at all. And actually, that that's exactly what my now um, 31-year-old son did. I mean, you know, so it's very close to home for me. Um, he started in a, in a in a sort of wealth management company down in um, Dover Street, you know, classic stuff, I suppose, uh, advising private individuals on investing in small quoted and unquoted companies. And after a few years, he thought, I've just had enough of this. I'm not, you know, I feel very constrained. And he and a colleague went out and started their own business, buying and running commercial companies. And they literally just bought the third company uh, on Thursday last week, and they now have, I think, 85 employees. So if I was starting again, I think that's the kind of thing I'd want to do. It's interesting because I was at um, the Master Investor Show yesterday at the oh, yes. in, uh, Business Design Center, which is a sort of gym. I think this year yeah. in particular, it was a Jim Mellon production. Yes, indeed. And, and uh, the, 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 the panel uh, discussion I was on related to just a general a chat about growth, value, momentum, and quality. Which 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 are the best? And one of the, I think it might have been, I don't know, it might have been Victor Hill, who's one of the the, the panelists. But we had a discussion about if it, what effectively touched on is what you just highlighted, which is um, you, you need almost to be sort of a, a billionaire philanthropist to consider investing in just about any form of traditional business now. Because uh, I mean, I, I would highlight traditional banking. But the two sectors that, that got discussed were retail and journalism. And you could argue that basically all of these are kind of like dead end professions. I don't know anyone in their right mind who would invest yeah. in any of them in, okay. in, in, when you had as an alternative something as a startup. So the thing that, that really is a game changer, and I've been slow to, for the penny to drop personally, is why would you invest in a traditional business with all of the baggage? When you could simply, basically, in your own terms, set up a startup with whatever whatever the product or service is, and then use the the, the awesome power of you know the World Wide Web and digital media and all the rest to potentially get a global business in in the blink of an eye. So, what one way to sum this up is something I saw recently, which I thought was quite a nice sort of turn of phrase, where someone said, "Growth investors invest on the basis that everything is going to change." And value investors invest on the basis that nothing is ever going to change. <laughs> so that was quite a nice way of expressing it. But the, the, the bottom line is that there's, there's so, it feels really as if the, the kind of creative disruption gale now is blowing harder and faster and louder than it ever has. I think that's part. I think that's right. But I think also, actually, what a lot of these youngsters doing, uh, my, my son included, is they are identifying little business little existing businesses which may be mom and pop businesses you know which are approaching the end of their natural life under the founders and are buying those expanding them you know merging them with others and so on you know so yeah. i think it's it's not entirely the the blue sky greenfield call it what you will startup i think you know a lot of that's happening and i actually think that's I think that's great, you know, because and, and by the way, these they are getting very high quality backers, these people, you know, to supply equity and so on. So so I think I think I think that's that's very good news. I mean, I, I do think it is desperately sad, though, that, that the sort of the active fund management, as I knew it, seems to be um, passing. You know, I, th I think that, that, that there are now, for example, in the small cap institutional scene, there are very, very few long and strong active fund managers around. There are some still, um, but not that many. Well, you touched earlier on um, the rise of ETFs and, and sort of the passive product set. Mm. Well, what what's your take on the the, the, the you know the, the likes of the vanguards of this world? One of my hobbies is is to try and get letters into the Financial Times. It's always a big challenge. This because <laughs> the the FT, as you know, is fiercely Remainer, and they know I'm fiercely pro Brexit. So they so getting a letter for me, getting a letter in the FT is um is dare I say quite a major achievement. You'll, and every you'll, now have, to and again, un, you'll have to do it under an assumed name like yeah. Natasha. <laughs> <laughs> Natasha Binkelbonk or something. Yeah, I think, that's very, I think I might try that to see if it works. 
<laughs> but one letter I did get in, which was on the um, in 2000, October 2017, on the 30th anniversary of the crash of 87. At the time, I was working for a company called GT Asset Management, but I had been working prior to that for M&G Group, which obviously still exists. GT is now part of Invesco. And the doyen of fund managers at the time was a chap called David Tucker, who ran the M&G Recovery Fund, which was by far the best performing fund over the last 20 years or something of that period. So the great crash happened. And some excited journalists sort of got hold of David Tucker and said, oh, well, well, what what are you going to do? You know, what are you going to do now? And he said, well, as you know, this is very much a computer-driven crash. And um, I'm personally going to go out and take a have a long lunch, you know. Um, couldn't say that anymore. But I, I, I do think that the, the, the reason he got in the FT is, is to draw the parallel with ETFs, which, uh, which are essentially passive, reactive rather than proactive machines, however you want to look at it. Mm. And I'd still, I do believe that, 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 will, that this massive concentration on ETF or Vanguard-type situations will, will lead to a, to a big crash in share prices at some point. Mm. Vanguard, of course, would say that's out of rubbish and everything would be absolutely wonderful, but um, I don't believe it personally. Well, I was struck when when Vanguard launched in the UK that or their sort of platform approach launched in the UK. And I looked on this is probably about five or six years ago now, but I looked on Hargreaves Lansdowne uh, on their website to see what the Vanguard It's a, a pop quiz for both of you, actually. Uh, <laughs> what the what the what the Vanguard S&P 500 index tracker ETF, what their annual management fee was on that. Yeah. So this is basically Vanguard's S&P 500 tracker. Have a guess what the uh, what the annual management fee was uh, and, and may still be, but it was about, say, four, four, four or five years ago. I would say about 0.1, 0.2%, something like Paul, that. Paul? Yeah, I, I I don't know. So I'll, I'll yeah, 0.25 think, or something. I think it was three basis points. <laughs> and, the, and the point being and the point being you know if you're an active manager and i, I, I speak yeah. as an active manager if yeah. you're an active manager how on earth can you possibly attempt to compete with vanguard so yeah. you basically the point is you can't you can't and you don't and you won't so whatever the future holds it seems to me as as plain as the nose in front of your face that half of the industry or whatever massive proportion is just going to be owned by vanguard end of story because yeah. nobody can compete with what is it, to all intents and purposes, free. But the w- w- where I rail against this uh, myself is it, there's something uh, uh, something that smacks of capitulation when you're when you're going into it. It's like saying, well, you know what? I, I don't know what I really want. I just want I just want the blandest, most mediocre returns possible. I don't yeah. want the, even the remotest likelihood of outperforming anything. I just want give me average, please. And you know, I just can't accept that. But then, of course, there are two major. Consequences of all that, uh, well, probably more than two, but to, to me, I think the two most important ones are one is it means that boards of FTSE 100 companies can get away with murder, mm. you, know, you know, because so much of their shareholder base is just a is just a machine. So well, the because machine, the, you know the computer says yes, yeah. So the machines aren't going to vet um, your your remuneration package, you know. Uh, hello, Persimmon or something, you know, uh, so on. So that's one, you know. And the other is that, of course, there will be, and it's happening right now, been happening for a while, there will be fewer and fewer companies that come to the public markets because um, how do you value an, an IPO, et cetera, sensibly if um, most uh, great, great swathe of the shareholder base is just going to be a machine, you know. So, as you know, um, quoted, quoted companies in the US and the UK have gone down very dramatically. I haven't got the precise numbers, but I think they've gone down something like 30% in number over the last 15 years or so. And, and uh, the equity markets are, are shrinking all the time, quoted markets. Tim mentioned Jim Mellon, and Jim's got a, a, a very powerful ongoing theme about how we're all going to live much longer and therefore all the investment opportunities could possibly be in, in investing in, in, in that sector, in sectors that benefit from that. Is there anything that you can see potentially that sort of caught your interest any sectors or, or markets that might might be overlooked as you say jim's you know jim actually was at, i think he'd left gt asset management by the time i arrived but i i, I knew of his reputation well and he's he's uh, has a brilliant mind um in my view and uh, uh yes of course there is the whole people living longer and all the rest of it but i do think at the 
at the other end, as it were, that that um, we are we are ignoring um, the younger generation. You know, there's a sort of millennials, uh, put it like that, uh, at our at our peril as 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 to bringing them on as as investors. And and there's, what we haven't quite realised, I think, is is that again the sort of traditional methods of investing, etc. Um, don't really don't really suit the millennials. They 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 spend their lives online, uh, maybe on Skype, you know, it, it, uh, on on the mobiles, etc. That we haven't um we haven't we haven't made, if you like, online direct investing um, appealing or, or straightforward enough, you know. So I think there's there's a whole vast market opportunity in that direction. In my own little way, I've been trying to get involved in that for several years through the sort of you like the the crowdfunding and P2P scene. Now th- those scenes are a bit wild west. I would be the first to agree, and they need more um, sorting out. Um, but but in a way, to me, you know, market opportunity-wise, that that is that is a way to go to to bring people into the investment scene. If you can actually get them interested in, and it does appeal to generations as well, of course. But but if you can get those who are not used to equity investing in any shape or form, if you can get them to sort of commit five hundred pounds to this or five hundred pounds to that and see how it goes, then you're starting to get them involved in you know, in, in greater things as as time goes on. So I, I think that's a, whereas a big market opportunity. Isn't the big problem with millennials though, that they don't have any money. So, you know, it, it, it's all, it's fine in theory, having a sort of an app that, that can, that can have them trade and, and, and buy and sell as, at the speed of light. But all they really want is like a kind of smashed avocado exchange. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I yes, this money thing is very interesting, isn't it? Because yeah, they may not may well not have money to go and, you know, service a mortgage on a on a expensive property, etc. But um more and more of them are, you know, quite happy to blow, you know, a hundred quid or something going out and having a meal in a restaurant, you know, uh, and that's gone in, I'm not quite in 60 seconds, but in two hours flat, bye-bye. So I don't think it's hugely difficult to persuade millennials instead of spending £100, you know, two or three times a month or something on that, that they might actually think about spending four or £500, you know, a bit more than that maybe, on on something they can actually have them to hold, as it were, for for more than a, a couple of hours uh, instant gratification. So I I think there is, I, I I agree. I don't think you're going to get them putting in five thousand pounds or something like that because they just haven't got it. But I do think there is disposable income available to the millennials of say up to five hundred pounds a month. I've seen an app that encourages you to invest your change. I don't know if you've seen that at no, all. No, I haven't actually. It sounds fun. It's yeah, it's um. I don't know the name of it, but I've just seen the odd advert for it where it just says, just invest the rest of a very simple way of investing the rest of your change. Um, so if you're buying a coffee or something at the same right. time, whatever the change is over after the transaction, it allows you to invest it very simply. Yeah. I think Rory Sutherland was saying, um, who was a guest on the podcast, if, if you, um, in one of his TED Talks, if you had a big red button that you pressed every time uh, and it would invest five hundred pounds into your pension. You you would do it. It's just that that button doesn't exist or isn't mm. there. And so I think it's very interesting that you've you've mentioned it and and he's mentioned it. So there's obviously something something there that could that help people sort of intuitively and easily invest and get more involved in their own future, in their own financial future. This is all part of the nudge economy, isn't it? Just sort of just having these subtle subtle psychological cues to uh, to make people do the right thing. Yes. And I think that's the power of the internet and the power of of, of apps. Obviously, you can, you can just be addicted to sort of social media, but at the same time, you can use it for you know much better aims and, and, and gains. So I think that's a very untapped and unexplored area. I think that's right. You know, and um, way back in 1995, several of us were privileged and lucky enough to be involved at the start of the AIM stock market. And of course, that actually wasn't so difficult to get going because um, it, it, there was a ready-made infrastructure around. There were 
there were uh, corporate finance people, there were brokers, there were lawyers, accountants, etc. So you had all, you know, you had the sort of ready-made uh, infrastructure to go. With crowdfunding and P2P, it, it, it's still building infrastructure. You know, it's very, 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 very new. Um, I'm probably gross generalization and probably... Um, some of the crowdfunding platforms, the P2P platforms, like were listening to what I'm about to say, they probably sort of have 40 fits. But uh, my crowdfunding and P2P platforms have largely been started by a combination of techies and marketing people. Um, they have not been started much by people who understand how to build a marketplace, you know, which obviously something like AIM is, is, a, is a hub, it's a marketplace, you know. So, so I think that, um, and marketplace is about building trust. You know, you can't, you, you know, people are not going to go and buy oranges and uh, so on from a, from a fruit stall if they think the fruit stall is going to sell you rubbish, you know. So it is about building trust. And I don't think crowdfunding and P2P have quite got there yet in that. But, you know, Given time and a fair win, they will. Do you think the banks are going to be looking closely at it? Because it, obviously it's kind of taking their business. they either got to beat them or join them. I, I personally don't think so. I think, I think one can't get away from the statistic that banks, you know, lend 80 plus percent of their money out to property related transactions. You know, they, 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 they for years they've not really had their own infrastructure to deal with them. Um, with small company investing they're, they're just not geared to it i don't think they ever they ever they will be from ever frankly <laughs> you might you might the odd one like handles bank and what possibly it. could go wrong with that <laughs> indeed you know they're obsessed with i mean i you, you know i i have three investment maxims which on on the negative side is never ever invest in a clearing bank an airline stock or a textile company, you know, <laughs> which I do talk about in the City Grunt book. You know, if you look at the history of retail banks, if they can get it wrong, they will. You know, airline stocks these days speak for themselves. I don't even need to address that issue, I don't think. And textile companies slightly, slightly bizarre, but if you look, you know, you'll see that textiles move around the world to the cheapest location and you're forever chasing your tail, you know, so it's not even worth thinking about those. So, sorry, I'm slightly going off piece there, but... <laughs> no, it's great, great. I was going to actually ask if you could go back in time to the beginning of your career and give yourself a piece of advice. <laughs> I mean, you've mentioned sort of three little nuggets there, but what 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 would be the single most important piece of advice you could have given yourself knowing what you know now? I, I think it, it it is it's nothing particularly um, unusual, and and several people have said it before. Is is the I think the most important thing is to avoid the really trying to do your very best to avoid the really really bad mistakes. You know, that's easier said than done. You know, because you can you can build a lot of you know good things by having six or seven quite successful investments and you may get one what they call a 10 bagger or 20 bagger or whatever it is but but they can often be brought down with you know two or three absolute stumers which you just maybe when you you look back you didn't you just didn't um didn't realize that uh, you just just hadn't paid enough attention i i remember years ago now a colleague and i we analyzed for a while what were the root causes of our, of our biggest mistakes, which you might find vaguely interesting. And I think, again, it's covered in the City Grunt book and, and actually <laughs> uh, Evening Standard covered this one a while back as well. But um, one was the sort of, if you like, the more normal one where one just hadn't realized how how much a chief exec or a finance director or both had actually lied, lied to you. You just, you know, you can usually pick that up when people are lying but sometimes so so accomplished that you find it hard and you just need to work harder to pick those up but the other was was more interesting i think and and um and very few active fund managers pursue this one and the other is much more controversial which is actually quite a few of our mistakes that happened because the ceo had um if you like had a sort of midlife crisis um he'd <laughs> <laughs> he it was nearly always he uh, had suddenly t literally taken his eye off the company ball and started um, 
going out, you know, dating someone sort of half his age, you know, and and, uh, and you would be amazed the number of times that 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 you know that led to a big problem with the, the company and. Uh, and I, I often thought that um, if one had the resources that would have been good to employ, and you may think this is devious or Machiavellian or something, but it would have been of the companies on the spit where it would have been good to employ a crawl associates or something to actually, you know, do a bit of investigation as, as to what was going on in the, in the lives of the CEOs. Now, I... I do remember the old days, and they probably deny it, but uh, I do remember the particular very well-known fund manager at Fidelity in those days um, did precisely that, and uh, his his track record was excellent. Let's put it like that. Wow! <laughs> but I can't, I can't tell you how many times that 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 uh, tripped us up. So when Zuckerberg gets to his midlife, we we need to uh, we need to watch out, see what he's well, up to. Well, I mean, I'm going to try not be. I'm going to be very careful what I say here. But uh, the, the reason that the Evening Standard picked uh, picked this theme up, uh, wrote about in the City Grump, uh, was was of course well not of course, but um, you remember the the great uh, hoo-ha over what Martin Sorrell may or may not have been up to in in um, in oh. Shepherd's Market. You know, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and right. um, for me, maybe that was a um, the wrong conclusion to draw. But it reminded me of um, what we've just been talking about. Let's put it like that. So interesting. Speaking of really, really bad mistakes, brings us effortlessly to Mark Carney, who features <laughs> who features quite he- features quite heavily in the City Grump. Yeah. Uh, right out. Yeah. Uh, I think you describe him as well. I think you, you ask, is he the most dangerous man in Britain? To yes. Which the answer is, of course, yes. <laughs> is there any way of reversing the power of the central banks? Because another thing that we spoke about at the the conference yesterday was basically or, or discussing riffing or, or on the topic of you know have central banks basically broken the markets? Yes. Have ha, has all this accumulated nonsense of QE and ZERP and NERP? Has it all basically made the whole market system so dysfunctional, notably in the bond market, but with spillover effects into stocks? You know, is there any way of, again, to use that, that expression, sort of turning back the tide? Carney's biggest flaw is he's basically a political animal. I suppose if you look back over time, there are quite a few central bankers who have not been political animals, but have been <laughs> done equally, in my view, disastrous things. So, <laughs> but but um, I think his Achilles heel is is his sort of political prognostications, and that's affected what he's how he's. Uh, Govern the bank or what he's done, but I, I, yeah, I don't know. It's it's just so dangerous, isn't it? Having this sort of great god of a central financial authority that can seem to just um, just do it like do it like most of the time. There's a, there's a wonderful there's a wonderful book, um, and uh, you can get it on Amazon. It's 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 it, it's fooled a few people into buying it. It's a wonderful book called Cent- Modern Central Banking Explained. And it's like runs to that 200 pages, but every single page it says print money. It says print yes. money, print money, print money. <laughs> yes. money. Yes. And, and, and it's, 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 it's nailed a few people, which I think is, is, is absolutely priceless. But, but that's really the problem, isn't it? That I mean, in my experience, my, my thesis would be the last proper central banker anywhere in the world was probably uh, Volcker at the Fed. And that's, you know, 40 years ago. Yes. Because ever since that, all you've had is people who just, well, if in doubt, cut cut rates. And that's basically it. And now, if in doubt, cut rates and print money. And yeah. so the, the the craven capitulation, I would say craven-seeming capitulation by Jay Powell at the Fed. So this guy is talking about you know, quantitative tightening. And that that survived about two seconds. And the market basically puked. And, and of course, it's, so we're, we're now yes. back into easing territory again. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if that's discipline, I'd like to see you know, whatever the opposite of discipline is. Yeah, it, it it is crazy, isn't it? And um, it looks if like he's succumbing to politics, doesn't it? Really, pal. So, um, uh, well, I, I suppose I, he has the misfortune that he's he's sort of bubbled up just to sort of he's he's had to deal with uh, Donald Trump as the yes. uh, as the incumbent, which isn't something you necessarily wish on your worst enemy. <laughs> no, I really don't know what 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 the answer is, but I'm sure as hell what, what's happening in the moment is not the answer. Well, I think to be fair, I was thinking about this earlier because you, you're clearly a, a keen advocate for, for the, the value in inheriting small businesses. But one mm-hmm. thing I was going to ask, why do you think it is that, that the whole principles of free market capitalism now need to be defended? Because it seems like there are virtually no advocates for them in the political system. I think it's, I think it's because it's been 
coloured by the rampant irresponsibility of of um of Mark Carney of, of the well no I was going to say of the persimmons of this world yeah. you know the, um the, the the people have just taken such huge advantage of the position to line their own pockets um the, so it's, the, a, it's, a, it's effectively the rise of crony capitalism then that, that it is sort of poisoned the wealth for everybody else yes I think that's absolutely it you know and so as soon as you mention capitalism people think you know Black something cats. like Yes, exactly, and I think that's that's awful. You know, I mean, I it it's this it discolors, discolors, disfigures, whatever you want to call it, the 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 whole capitalist process. Um, and uh, you know, I I'm, I I think it's somehow you one needs to get that across in the media much more than than is happening right now. Um, I think one of the sadnesses is you, you know for I I chaired the financial PR company as well for four or five years and I I talked to the press for my entire sort of city life right from when I was an analyst at at, um, at the stockbroking firm back in the late seventies. You know, so I, I'm very used to dealing and talking to the the press. I think one of the sadnesses is now there are so there are fewer and fewer thoughtful financial journalists around and that's because of the economics of the of conventional media we all know yeah. you know just yeah that it's more and more difficult to get across if you like the case for capitalism because there are a few few people who are there to, to talk to about it speaking of homicidal marxists what do you think <laughs> is the, the the danger of an accidental corbyn mcdonnell government here well, I think ah. I, I think that personally, I think the danger is if the Tories uh, persist in trying to heal themselves from the inside, well, you know, heal, <laughs> tried to sort themselves out from the inside. I, I, th I think traditional Tory voters have just had enough, you know. Um, so it, doesn't, it doesn't seem to be the most complicated thing in the world, just ditch Theresa May. It's not, not complicated. It's not. But I think because it hasn't happened yet, the most, you know, a lot of the normal Tory voters have just said, well, clearly, this bunch are just a bunch of spineless incompetence, you know, and, and therefore, when they ditch Theresa May, who, who, know, who knows we're actually going to get anything much better, you know. Um, I, I really do believe that those, those 14 or whatever it is, members of the cabinet need to resign en masse and go and, and get themselves involved in a new political party. You know, they, they, they need that way you will bring vote my view you will bring voters back to the conservative spirit if i can put it like ethos etc yeah. etc you, you I, I just think that the current bunch are showing themselves so spectacularly inept the electorate will not forgive them even if they do pop somebody else in number 10 given your um your vast experience what do you make of cryptocurrencies and given what your opinion yeah. is of the Bank of England. Yeah. Um, do you? Do you, so yeah, it, would it be gold and cryptocurrencies, yeah. both or neither? Well, stupidly, I got inveigled into giving a, a talk, if that is the word, at the Institute of Econ at a dinner at the Institute of Economic Affairs of the IEA. You know, because uh, I got flattered, just like you have. You see, just flattered me now into sort of <laughs> talking about that. Well, <laughs> luckily, I brought. Thank God, I had the wit to bring along a real expert with me so i'm i could just do the song and dance act and they could listen to the real the guy who really uh, knows this world inside out i i i i'm a big fan of blockchain or you know distributive ledger technology call it what you like now obviously mm. well not maybe not obviously but there, there are two types of blockchain one is what's called open-ended and one is what's called closed-ended Cryptocurrencies are very much open-ended. It's anyone can play sort of routine. Closed-ended is much more sort of a, a thing where a group of, of people, you know, a closed-end group of people use one technology, i.e. a blockchain technology, to speed up transactions internally. You know, and I think that's beginning to happen and will continue to happen left, right and centre. I think that, and this is going to be quite difficult and dangerous, I think that on the cryptocurrency front, I think sooner or later, coming back to the dreaded central banks, the central banks will suddenly, well, I know they're all working on it and thinking about it, um, will suddenly realise that if they start issuing their own digital currency, they've really got things sewn up because... Um, because overnight, and, and the authorities will realize, will realize this as well, overnight you will do away with the black economy 
because cash all gone, you'd be able to trace uh, money laundering situations much more easily, et cetera, et cetera. You know, from a central authority point of view, what is there not to like? Um, mm. So I do believe that, 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 that you know, you, you've obviously got Bitcoin and so on as sort of um, private in enterprise cryptocurrencies. But I, th I suspect sooner or later the central banks will seize the initiative and say, to hell with that, we're going to issue our own um, digital currency. Interesting. And and what about gold? Would you sprinkle some of that in, in your portfolio or, well, I, or just stick to companies? I suppose it is, you know, I, there, has, it, it, there has to be a place for funk money. It doesn't want well, money because it's not, you know what I mean? Um, there, there has to be a place for, for something which has been recognized for thousands of years and, and does have as a result some kind of store of value you know um i i i've never been a great user of gold because i just i've just always felt that the other people will find some way around it you know the central bankers find something to do and so on but uh, there has to be a place for it i guess Tim, what do you say? Media picks? I, if you're not aware, Stephen, we um, we tend to finish off with, with as, as Paul said, a, a round of media picks. So it can be a book, a film, a blog, anything you've seen, read, consumed as, as entertainment that you've either loved or hated. Right. Um, so not to put you on the spot. So I, do you want to go first, Paul? Uh, yeah, OK. Yeah, I'll, I'll go first. Um, so the my one for this week is going to be the afterlife. Oh, which you've, is, um, you've just, okay, you've just, you've just, you've just <laughs> urinated all over my birthday cake. <laughs> oh, well, look, look, we can have a double, we can have a double, a double header. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll tell you what I liked about it. I mean, I used to follow Ricky Gervais on Twitter and he used to, after a while, I just couldn't anymore because he'd always be going on a, and winding up people who are religious. Yeah. And it's not that I'm necessarily religious myself, but I just didn't appreciate the, the, one, the, the way one he was trick, just The one trick poniness of yeah, just like constantly, you know, just sort of being argumentative. Now, that's completely up to him if he wants to do that. I don't have a problem with him doing whatever he wants with his Twitter account. You know, that's, that's free, each free, to his own. Free. But so so I just decided to, to you know, obviously not listen to it. Um, so I didn't really want to like Afterlife, but I thought I'd give it a go. And actually, it was it's just to set it up, it's about... Um, a Ricky Gervais character who's lost his wife, she's died, and um, he's coming to terms with it. He thinks he's got a superpower in that he just doesn't care anymore and he wants to commit suicide. And so it goes from there. It's a very interesting premise. And actually, I think it's very well written. So despite uh, he does sort of shoehorn a few um, ideas or his ideas about religion into it and his arguments occasionally are quite clumsily delivered i think because he uses another character to ask a question yeah. that he can answer very sort of directly to his is in a very unchallenged way and i i didn't like that part of it but the humanistic side of it was was fantastic so i think it it's definitely worth a watch so what did you what did you I, like I liked, about it, Tim, I, liked or, it. I liked it too and the, i mean the thing i find staggering is the the critical hostility to it which i can only assume yes. is because ricky gervais has made a lot of enemies over his time and so I, I, I detect from uh, particularly the reviews here, a lot of sort of score settling going on in the papers. I quite liked it. I agree. Some of it's a bit clunky. Um, and but but I think, as you've, I think, alluded, a lot of the talk about religion is 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 actually is, is it quite interestingly handled? I mean, my favorite phrase, and I'm not sure if this gets a quote or not, it might actually get a, a kind of name check in, in one of the episodes. But is is this like because I'm not religious, but, you know, I, I kind of I suppose have grudging respect for those people who are. But the, 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 the belter of a line that I know is, I contend that we are both atheists, but only that I believe in one God less than you do. When you understand why you reject all the other gods, but the one you worship, you will understand why I reject yours. And it's a cracking line. And I'm not sure if it features in the, in the show or not. But it has moments of extreme, some of it's extremely funny. A lot of it is very mm. offensive. But I just find the hostility to it mystifying. I think that's just the, they just get it wrong all the time. It's like, for example, um, I know these are quite big media events or, you know, products, uh, whichever way you want to look at it. But take the band Led Zeppelin. They thought they were rubbish and would never survive. ACDC, absolutely the same. Bohemian Rhapsody, the same. The film, The Bohemian Rhapsody, the same. They just get it wrong again and again. And then well, it's, William, it's, William, it's William Goldman. Nobody knows anything. 
Well, but people do like people like you and I do know. You know, we're saying this is really good, and they but they can't look beyond it. I think a lot of reviewers want to sound clever in their reviews rather than just being honest about what they're seeing. Yeah. And if if you watch it, the honest thing about it is it's very touching. It's a very nice way of, of dealing with some big, you know, some big themes. Exactly, it's very beautifully done. It's it's extremely well written, um, and so you can't get away from that. So I I think. A, a child would be able to see that. So I don't, if, if you're not going to identify that in your review, then all you're doing is putting your own biases yeah. into it. And that's not what you're supposed to do. So look at the IMDB, I think generally is a better, a much better way of judging things. Stephen, do you have one for us? Yeah, I, but my, mine, forgive me, mine's probably a little bit more than a week old now, but, but, um, and he, of course, is um, absolutely not everybody's cup of tea. And I haven't met him. So I, I I'm not going to pass judgment on him but i absolutely loved um dominic cummings article in the spectator i think a little bit of a week ago which is like a <laughs> a stream of constant thought as it were you know um um he's a bit it, of a funny it, duck isn't he old dominic cummings he's yeah but it, 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 it is well it is well worth reading it, it, it is it is a sort of stream of uh, invective against uh, what, what's going on. And, you know, we, we fought them last time. And my God, if you, they think they lost last time, meaning the, the, the sort of remain side, you wait till this time, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it, it is, it is um, it's quite something to read. It really is. is. He, he's kind of the ominous grease of, of, of leave, isn't he? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I thoroughly recommend it. You, you know, you may not, you may not be your cup of tea, but it is, um, I'm trying to remember that guy who wrote um, for Rolling Stone about the vampire squid. You know, it's got, a, uh, Taibbi, Matt Taibbi. Yeah, it's yes. much. It's it's written much in that sort of style, as it were. You know. I mean, uh, actually, I think we we should just have that for old times' sake because it is one of the best quotes ever in the history of of excellent quotes. A giant vampire squid yes. wrapped around the face of humanity, yeah. relentlessly jabbing its blood funnel into anything that smells like money <laughs> my god how did you remember that tim well that is phenomenal that is absolutely phenomenal well tim other other, other yeah. bloodthirsty investment banks are available <laughs> yeah. amazing yeah. well that's absolutely brilliant look okay. um stephen thank you so much for coming that's on the show um and uh, best of luck with the book yeah. when it's already well, released. The City, the city um, Grump rides out. Yeah, that's it. The City yes. Grump rides Available out. Available now. <laughs> and we'll, we'll, we'll provide links in the show notes, as always. And if people want to get in touch with you, yeah. Stephen, how would they do that? Um, they can get in touch are you through on, my email. Are you on Twitter? Um, I am on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's the City it, it is, it, the city Grump is... So I think it's under Hazel Smith on Twitter, I think. Um, or they can get in touch with an email if you like. Give you, the email is is loft scanned, or you can put it up on your thing if you like. L o f t s k a n d loft scanned at hotmail.com. You know, very pleased to hear from them. Brilliant stuff. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks to everyone for listening. Really appreciate your support, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. See you soon. Cheerio. Take care. Bye. Bye. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.